Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Iraqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. Over eight months ago, Iraqis voted in the early parliamentary elections on October 10, 2021. With summer in full swing and temperatures at 50 degrees Celsius, the political scene has boiled over, most recently with the resignation of 73 Sladrist MPs. Based on the recent Supreme Court ruling, the current government has limited authority, and Iraq remains a long way from having a new government with full authority to tackle Iraq's many pressing issues. To delve deeper into this subject, I am joined today by the people who make this podcast possible, Mohamed Al-Wa'ili, Ali Al-Mawlawi, and Hamza Haddad. Welcome again, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Hassan. Hamza, I'd like to start with you first. Since our last recording, you've become a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and last week you put out an article titled From Parliament to Street, Iraq's Emerging Politics of Domination. Could you please give us a summary of what you wrote in this article and what's happened recently since we spoke in April? Yeah, so the article came a few days after the resignation of the Sledis MPs. And that political development really just embodies what this government formation has been, which ultimately rests with the Shia political parties unable to come to agreement with one another and enter as one major Shia bloc uh, to form the government. And it's coming at a time where Iraqis are getting frustrated. It's taking a long time. It's, it's summertime, so tensions tend to be high amongst the public. And I tried to analyze and figure out, you know, what, what is the incentive of uh, Muqtada Sadr doing this? And when you analyze it, he's got multiple benefits of him actually doing this. Uh, and the first clear one is if there is any public protests in the summer um, due to the lack of poor services or frustration with government formation, he deflects all the blame that's there because he can claim, look, I, I've resigned. Don't blame me. Blame the others. And at the same time, if he is still playing politics and still wants to be a part of the next government formation, by pulling out, he's able to gain greater concessions from his political rivals. And those are the two main things that stood out for me. But that's just the, that's just looking at it, uh, in the short term. In the long term, I think, uh, this reflects the changing nature of Iraq's politics. In the past, in particular, the Shia political parties, they've always been rallied together due to some existential crisis, whether it's Al-Qaeda in Iraq or, or ISIS or a Kurdish uh, secessionist movement to, to divide the country. They come together and they, 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 they fight back. But now that's no longer the case. They're not facing these existential crises anymore. And so, it obviously seems that they feel they have the space now to to fight it amongst themselves, but it's coming at a high cost being the demographic majority. Thanks, Hamza. Those are two very important points. Mohammed, I'd like you to jump in and please tell me what you would add to the recent developments. Um, thanks, Hassan. Well, I mean, uh, I agree with what Hamza said. Uh, and on top of this, I think the media played an important role. Um I think that Sadr uh, has a difficulty facing the rest of the Shia 
Um, while he is one movement, uh, the rest of the Shia are different parties and groups. Each one of them has its own media machine. And each one of them has its own rhetoric. And what I think the coordination framework members did was portraying Sadr as someone who is putting basically the rest of the Shia under the bus. Um, he's basically uh, portrayed in the in the coordination from the media as someone who wants to go with the with the Kurdish parties and the, and the Sunni parties, but uh, not include the Shia, right? And uh, this uh, sort of rhetoric um, helps actually rally some concerns among amongst the people. And so there's very concerned about his his image as someone who uh, wants actually to to lead the Shia. So if the coordination framework um, portrays him as someone who wants to divide the Shia, then everyone's going to ask, okay, if he wants to divide the Shia, how does he want to lead them then? And this has been, I think, uh, skillfully played. And if you watch the different shows and uh, the different statements, uh, you can see that this was basically um, focused on a lot. And it has paid off, I think. Um, it has put a lot of pressure on Sadr. And combined with the other factors, I think this helped a lot in, in, in making him decide uh, his recent decision. Thanks, Mohammed. Ali, if you can please uh, jump in here and, and give me your, your sense of what specific events in recent weeks led us to where we are today. Yeah, so I think, first of all, we should start from the very beginning, which is the elections. And uh, what I have been very surprised about in terms of uh, Sadr's actions is that he's actually been quite consistent uh, throughout since the uh, election results came out. He came out very early on to say that uh, his intention was to form this Hakumat Aghlabiya Wataniya, this national majority government. Um, make of it what you will, but you know, essentially what it means is that he was not willing to uh, come to a real concession with the coordination framework over the shape of the next government. He wanted to dominate that process. And he's been consistent in his rejection of um, any real concessions with the framework uh, on the formation of the government um, throughout this whole process. And in the end, you know, he, he left the process through his own volition. Um, and so he didn't really give in to demands to come to the negotiating table and, and, and concede um, anything major with the, with the framework. So th- I think this is an interesting sort of data point because I think we have to we have to sort of try to understand what is his motivation, what is this kind of strategic goal in all of this process. And so for me, what I would say I think is that I think for for Sadr essentially, it's about the question of zaama. Now zaama typically is translated as you know leadership. I don't know if it does it really justice. Zaama really means sort of an uncontested leadership. Uh, and it's something that many of the most ambitious politicians in Iraq have sought, right? So if you look at Hamid al-Halbusi, for example, he's been working hard to become Zaim al-Mukawin al-Sunni, right? The the leader of the, the Sunni sort of component. And there are other sort of, you know, Za'amat out there as well. And I think Sadr has this ambition. The question is, you know, how big is that ambition? Uh, because there are also multiple layers to uh, a za'im, right? So you can be za'im al-muqawwin, which is really a political position. It's a political sort of leadership of a component. Muqawwin is uh, has sort of political connotations because it refers to the Sunnis, the Shias, and the Kurds as political units. 
But then you can go beyond that. You can become Zaim al Ta'ifa, for example, the leader of the sect that has religious connotations. And, you know, there are indications if you listen to the way that uh, Salar speaks and also his, his supporters that he has those ambitions over the long term. For him, wanting to become sort of the dominant Shia political player is just, you know, a, a stepping stone to something greater. And so going back to the point is, you know, why did he in the end decide to leave? Because ultimately this um, stagnation in the political process, his inability to form the government um, undermines his uh, longer term goal, which is to assert himself as a much more robust religious leader um, within uh, within the Shia sect. And to add further to what Ali is saying is, you need to look at the, the bigger picture and again, see that the environment allows for this to happen. Again, it goes back to there's none of that existential threat to the post-2003 political system. All sides have kind of come to an understanding of this is the political system. It's been able to withstand a lot of things. How do we make the most of it? And so for the Shia political parties, it's natural for them to have a, a battle for domination of that sect. And it's natural for the one who has the most popularity at the current moment to try to take advantage of that. So we briefly saw this in 2008 to 10 with Nurin Maliki. Um, he was on the, on the rise. Uh, Iraq was stabilizing, coming out of a uh, sectarian civil war. And he tried to do that. Um, you know, shortly afterwards, we, we ended up going into another war and, you know, there wasn't the, the time or opportunity for political parties to play politics like that up until now. And at the moment, it's Muqtad al-Sadr who has the most seats in, in the 2021 elections. And so he's trying to capitalize on that. But as we've seen in the past eight months, 73 seats, it's a lot. But others have won more than that in the past. And they too struggled with forming a government. And it's just his turn to, to see that. And I agree with this point about the leadership, because after the 2008 uh, campaign by Maliki uh, of Charge of the Knights, uh, we saw that his supporters start using the word Al-Za'im, the leader, which is the same um, title that uh, Iraq's first Republican ruler, Abdul Karim Qasim, had in 1958. Um, and, and, and so it only makes sense that Muqtada wants to have that uh, Az-Za'im uh, title. It also goes along with the fact that he was in a tripartite alliance with others uh, who had that leader. Mas'ud Barzani for Kurdistan region, Muhammad al-Halbusi, as uh, Ali said, for the, uh, the Sunni component. And so it makes sense that he wants to be the leader of of the Shia component politically. Now, when it comes to the his image, clearly something happened that triggered his pulling out of the political process in order to maintain that image. Mohammed, would you be able to talk a little bit about that, especially when it comes to response to attacks by the coordination framework against uh, Muqtada and his followers? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the first point I mentioned that, you know, um, the PR game that uh, the coordination framework played was actually quite elaborate. Uh, they understand that Sadr cares a lot about his image. Uh, this outburst that we saw on media against the coordination framework um, proves actually this point. 
And Sadr seems also to have another sore point, uh, which is the fact that he wants to be viewed as someone who represents the poor and someone who will be the reformer. Uh, the problem is that given that he was part of the government previous to this, and even, even this government, the people who represented him did not really perform that well. And uh, I think what the coordination framework uh, did throughout these past months is basically reminding everyone that he doesn't have a clean record either. So when Sadr attacked them of being corrupt and uh, not competent enough and having mismanagement, they re the response was also that oh, we were part of the previous governments, but you were not able to um, perform any better. So the question is then, uh, why should we believe that if you actually are the dominant force in the next government uh, representing the Shia, that you are going to do better? Uh, there is no um, proof to that. And I think Sadr also realizes this. And his fiery statements in the past are not reassuring. And therefore, um, the public is obviously watching closely. And I think everyone is more or less convinced that uh, what Sadr is promising is not going to happen. Yeah, and just to jump in here, so I think this issue of how the coordination framework was messaging uh, throughout this um, this whole process is really interesting because if you remember back in January, uh, there was a really interesting moment where uh, Qais al-Khaz'ali came out and sort of messaged this idea that um, you know Shia unity um, was the only safeguard uh, against the enemies of Iraq. Right, and you saw this sort of consistent messaging from uh, leaders within uh, the framework, basically suggesting that um, the split that has occurred within the Shia um, is a threat to Iraq and also a threat to the, the larger Shia cause. Um, uh, Faleh Fayyad also said something similar uh, within the same week, where he he talked about this sort of conspiracy against you know majoritarian uh, rule of, of of the Shia and kind of suggested that, you know, Sadr was inadvertently playing into this conspiracy without really knowing what he was doing. And, and then Sadr reacted um, in a very obvious way within the same week where he, he came out and issued this sort of recorded um, statement. Um, it was a very unusual speech, actually, even by his standards, because he, he looked physically unnerved. You know, he, he looked sort of uh, agitated. Uh, and he basically kind of pushed back against these uh, accusations that you know, he was um, dividing the Shia and that he um, he was playing into the conspiracies from abroad. Um, and he even said, actually, that um, everything that he was doing was not just for Iraq, but even for the Shia sect. Right. I mean, the, the fact that he had to sort of emphasize the, um, this this notion that he is you know, a defender of the Shia sect is, is important because obviously he's trying to project himself as a nationalist leader. But at the same time, you can see how important it is to go back to this con concept of Za'ama. You can see how important it is that he wants to portray himself as a Za'im for the Shia as well. Um, not just in a political sense, but as I said, in a, in a religious sense as well. Uh, and then the, the next day, if you remember, actually, this is what I thought was really interesting. On the 25th of January, he gave this um, recorded televised speech, um, which was heavily edited. And then the next day he went to Baghdad, um, where he sought meetings with members of the, the framework. And actually he was um, kind of rebuffed. He, um, no one actually uh, agreed to meet with him. And he went back to, to Najaf empty-handed. So you can see that this sort of coordination framework messaging against him 
really unnerved him and perhaps he felt like it was really undermining his overall um, strategic objective of projecting himself as this sort of uncontested uh, defender and, and leader of um, not just the Shias but also um, of, of the country as a whole. I agree completely with that point and I would take it a step further and say that a reaction of what you just described is the anti-normalization bill come law. And we got that because he wanted to dispel the illusion that he is looking to divide the Shia or lead us down a path that normalizes relations with the Zionist entity. So I agree with that point and want to take the time now to ask Hamza about the unity of the Shia and can they collectively agree to appoint a strong prime minister rather than a weak one like Adil Abdel Mahdi or Mustafa Al-Kalami? So just on the point of Shia unity and maybe going back to what Ali was saying, it's interesting to see what the different political parties in the coordination framework, um, you know, the narrative they want to play about countering Sadr's rise, um, whether it's part of the broader Shia move or not. But you also have people that are, you know, so people that you have that are more Western-leaning or are seen as moderate, such as former Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi or Ammar al-Hakim. And they're not using that rhetoric, yet they're part of the coordination framework that's countering Sadr's rise. And I think that has a lot to say as well, that it's not necessarily an ideological uh, move here that pushes these people, uh, parties and leaders together, but rather ensuring that there is an equilibrium amongst the political parties. And I think that's an important aspect to have. So how each one wants to portray it is one thing, but what's driving it, I think, is, 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 is political reality. And that is to not be irrelevant and to remain part of uh, the, the next government. And it's not just only for, for Shia parties, but it's for all political parties. I mean, we saw this in 2018 when you had the split between the Bina and Islah. The KDP had joined forces with, with the state of law and Fatah at the time. And, you know, the more Iran-leaning side, because at, at that time, that was in their best interest politically. And it's the same thing again today. It's the political parties will go after what's best for them. It's not necessarily an ideological drive. Um, if it if it fits that narrative, I'm sure they're going to play it like uh, like Ali reference with uh, with Khaz Ali and Fayyav. But it's important to not overestimate um, ideology here and what's 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 at risk today. And so you're asking me, what's the next move for the Shia political parties? What kind of prime minister will they nominate? I don't think it's going to change much about the kind of person they will nominate because. Yes, it's a coordination framework without the Sadras. Let's assume that the Sadras do not return. It's the coordination framework is still an umbrella of just the remaining Shia parties. It's not like it's one party and they have their man or woman that they want to, to lead the next government. So it's going to most likely be another compromise candidate that they choose. And they still have to get the approval of other political parties from the Sunni sect, from the from from Kurdistan region. And so 
we we are very likely to get someone like Mustafa Al-Kazmi or Adil Abdel Mahdi. I agree that it will be a consensus uh, prime minister, but Muhammad, knowing that it could potentially be a cabinet without the approval or consent of the Sadrists, and that as early as 2023, that cabinet could face uh, protests across Baghdad and the southern provinces, wouldn't they want to change things up, learn from their lessons, and have a stronger prime minister in order to weather those upcoming storms? Yeah, I think I believe that uh, this could be actually the case. Um, yes, I'm, I mean, of course, Hamza is right when he said that it's going to be a consensus uh, prime minister. And uh, you are right as well. Uh, but the difference this time is that when you have uh, all the rest of the Shia parties in one sort of umbrella um, organization and uh, they know what is at stake, and uh, they have been coherent, quite coherent actually, uh, throughout the last month, there's a chance that a stronger prime minister is going to come out. Obviously, um, the Sunnis and the Kurds have to agree on him. This is not going to change. Uh, but this time, uh, I think there's a chance that we have more coherence. And uh, one silver lining from this um, crisis amongst the Shia is that now we have two uh, quite clear Shia blocks or political orientations what is represented by Sadr and what is represented by the coordination framework. It's not as coherent as we would have them, for instance, in other countries where you have like two parties that are um, united or two strong coalitions that are united. But the prime minister that is going to come out is going to be more representative of uh, uh, the Shia than compared in the past. In the past, for instance, if you remember, we had Maliki uh, from the... Um, Shia bloc at that time, Tirafi Iraq al Muahad. But uh, not everyone was supportive. And at one stage, we had the Shia themselves uh, with the different parties acting as if they were the opposition, despite the fact that they were basically the ruling coalition, in the ruling coalition. Um, this time, it's not going to happen. Anyone the coordination framework chooses will have the complete or almost complete support. Uh, from the coordination framework parties. Um, they have, he has to have the support from the Kurds and also from the Sunnis. Thank you very much, Mohammed. Ali, do you agree that there is now a clear two-way split amongst the Shia? And if so, what that means going forward for possible scenarios in terms of government formation? Yeah, it's certainly been a two-way split over the last, uh, you know, eight months or so. Um, so obviously, th there's a lot of talk now about this idea that, you know, this most recent period has been marked by intra-Shia rivalry, uh, as opposed to, you know, inter-sectarian uh, rivalries. And, and in reality, because of this sort of collective opposition to Sadr's att attempts at dominating the political scene, there has been a, a kind of a significant level of cohesion and solidarity amongst um, you know, most of the other uh, Shia parties. Uh, and, and so it is a two-way split. It's a split between Sadr and, and the rest. Um, now, of course, there are internal rivalries between these uh, parties, but 
what we've seen, I think, is quite significant uh, over the last eight months is despite Sadr's attempts to um, break off parts of the framework, um, they've all maintained this, um, you know, sort of red line, this unwillingness to undermine each other. So the big question is, how will they work together going forward now that Sadr is, you know, at least temporarily out of the picture? Uh, and th- that's a big question. Uh, I don't think it's clear. But um, if, uh, if the last eight months are an indication, then I think it may be possible that the framework may come to a collective decision about who the next prime minister will be and then go and negotiate with the, the Kurds and the Sunnis. That's a different set of dynamics compared to uh, 2018, where you know there was a very clear split amongst the Shias. They couldn't agree on uh, a, a prime minister, and then it was the Sadrists and, and Fatah that ended up nominating Adil Abdel Mahdi. And it is these dynamics that I want to talk about next. Hamza, earlier this year, you wrote um, the paper on the path to government formation in Iraq. Talk to us about how the Kurdish and Sunni political parties are going to respond, keeping in mind KDP is on the back foot after the federal Supreme Court rulings, so it is hard to believe they would support business as usual as we saw in 2018. Yeah, I mean, we we spent a lot of this episode talking about the internal Shia divisions, but there's also a big division um, between the KDP and PUK. Now, I know that's historic, but it's coming back to the surface again. And throughout all of this, the PUK has also stood by the coordination framework um, and didn't cave in and join the tripartite alliance, which they could have, and it would have been almost enough seats to take them to the two-thirds uh, quorum needed to elect a president. But that wasn't the case. So um, just because Shia political parties... Uh, can be in agreement and move forward to nominate their prime minister. It doesn't mean that things will move smoothly because the Kurdish parties need to come to an agreement with one another about who their nominee is for the president. And then moving forward, once we have a government, how are they? Go- how is this new government going to hash out these long problems that we haven't been able to resolve? in the last 19 years, and the most uh, prominent one being the oil and gas law. Mohammed, we recently passed the eight-month mark since we voted in the elections. Uh, the longest government formation process we've had post-2003 is in 2010, where it took us nine months to form a government. We're clearly going to um, pass that mark this time around. Tell me what that means, please. Yes, I mean, uh, obviously it's problematic that we take that long um, to form a government. Uh, this is always going to be on the expense of providing services, uh, making sure that salaries are there, planning for the budget, etc. Uh, so this is uh, one big uh, dysfunction in, in Iraq's nascent democracy. But obviously there's also a silver lining to this, um, given that Iraq is not a traditional democracy and uh, it's not located in a stable uh, region. Um, I think it's always better that the political process takes as long as it needs, as long as it's peaceful. Just like in 2018, uh, we are seeing again some analysis surfacing, talking about uh, civil war between this time the Shia themselves. 
my comment to this is that, again, this is not a very um, accurate, uh, if not uh, objective uh, reading of, of what could happen, in my opinion. We have always had uh, the Marja'iya, the religious authority, as a safety valve. And there's always Tehran, where everyone, including Sadr, actually can go uh, and negotiate. This has been the case since 2003, and I think it's going to remain like this. So in my opinion, it's always better to talk um, than to fall back to other methods of, you know, um, dealing with, with, with the different conflicts and the crisis. Thank you, Mohammed. Final question, and I want uh, all three of your uh, opinions. What do you think are Sadr's next steps? Ali, please start. Well, I think to state the obvious, Sadr wouldn't relinquish his 73 seats in parliament without um, some sort of a plan. I mean, he must have calculated that there's a better route for him to achieve his strategic objectives than through this government formation process. Uh, And, you know, I think it's really interesting when you listen to uh, Sadrists speak in public, um, you can get a sense of what they're really thinking behind closed doors. And every now and again, someone will sort of inadvertently say something which they probably shouldn't have said um, in public. But you know that they're probably thinking this stuff and talking about this sort of stuff um, behind closed doors. So if you remember back in February, uh, Hazim Al-Araji, who is one of the very vocal uh, members of the Sadrist movement, he uh, he talked about how um, Hanana, which is you know where Muqtada um, Sadr resides, it's the, the neighborhood in, in Najaf. Um, he talked about how Hanana um, had become uh, the center of decision making, um, both politically and religiously, uh, which caused uh, a bit of an uproar um, because it was seen to have you know undermined the position of, of Najaf and the Marja'iyah. Um, and he, he actually used the the word Markaz al Qarar Siyasi wa Shari'i, right? Um, by Shari'i, he kind of denotes a religious authority. Um, and he was forced to backtrack. In fact, Muqtada Sadr um, uh, kind of publicly rebuked him and uh, requested that he um, issue an, uh, an apology. He didn't actually apologize if you listen to what he said. It was kind of one of those, you know, sorry, not sorry moments. But he did sort of, you know, mention the fact that the, the Marjaya in Najaf is the, you know, the, the, the source of um, religious and um, moral authority. But to my point, you know, these sort of things aren't said in a vacuum. I mean, I think within Sadra circles, um, there is this sort of ambition um, for Hanana to become, you know, uh, this center of power in, in, in Iraq um, in the way that, you know, Najaf and you know, specifically the, the Marja'iya and Najaf um, are currently. And, you know, we talk about Za'ama just, just as a side point. Um, I don't know if you heard um, Sayyid Ahmed al-Safi's speech last week. Um, it was sort of uh, to commemorate the um, the anniversary of the the fatwa uh, of the jihad al kifai and he he mentioned he actually referred to uh, the marja'iyah of uh, Grand Ayatollah Sistani as zaama ruhiya the spiritual leadership and this is another higher level of zaama that um, you know goes beyond being zaim of uh, a sect because being a spiritual leader. Um, uh, denotes that you're you're beyond the sect. You you actually um, you're uh, you're a spiritual leader for for the entire country, and so uh, you know I think the point is that looking very closely at um, h- how the Sadrists are are speaking uh, both internally and in the public domain, you can see that they're still very very ambitious. They haven't given up um, on their strategic objectives, 
what they are hinting at, and I think it's probably the most likely scenario, is that they will use the street uh, to mobilize the masses um, to undermine whatever attempt there is at forming the next government. That's probably the most you know uh, logical thing to do. Um, whether it transpires and when it transpires is, is not clear. I mean, it may not necessarily happen in the immediate future. Uh, Sadr may, may wait um, um, some time before uh, mobilizing the street. In, in, in the same way that he did against the, the government of Adil Abdul Mahdi, he gave him a year and then he, you know, he joined the, the, the protests um, of Tishreen. You know, Sadr still holds some significant cards uh, and uh, we shouldn't, we, sh- we certainly shouldn't rule him out. I think it would be a big mistake to assume that he's just out of the picture uh, indefinitely. Yeah, great points by Ali. And it, it would be foolish to count out the Sadras, especially when you consider that before the October 2021 elections, when Sadr claimed he was pulling out of uh, politics and it was unknown of whether he would partake in the elections, there is a, a fear of whether elections will be held because it's that dangerous to have one major party not participate, especially when you consider that they have arms. And so if everyone was worried about them not participating in the elections, then it's difficult for, for me to, to see government formation move forward without the Sadrists at least accepting the situation. Um, but like Ali said, the, the chance of them being outside means that they can always go to the streets and, and cause havoc there. And there's always a fear that that can escalate, which is something that Iraq doesn't need at this moment in time. And so we have to wait and see. It will really become finalized when there's new 73 new MPs sworn in. That's when we'll really have clarity as to whether uh, how serious the Sadists are about the resignation. If they have resigned and we have 73 new MPs, then it's going to be interesting to see how involved are they are they in the government formation and whether they have any allocations of, of, of ministries. And then moving forward, you know, does Muqtada give this new government a year like he did with Adil Abdel Mahdi? Or is this government able to see, see out its uh, term in office? These are all things we have to wait and see and ultimately hope for the most peaceful process. And as importantly, a government that provides services to its people. Thanks, Hamza. Mohammed, what are your thoughts? I mean, the demonstrations are going always to be on the table. Um, this is one effective tool that Sadr has been using skillfully in the past, and this is going to remain as such. The more important question really is, what will the coordination framework offer Sadr? Uh, because as Hamza and Ali uh, said, it's difficult to imagine a government being formed without uh, the Sadr's being appeased somehow. The Sadrists might not take part in the formation process or might not get some positions, but uh, the coordination framework nevertheless has to think about a way to appease them, at least politically. I think that's the more critical factor that will also dictate well, what Sadr will do next. Um, I think the overall uh, goal of Sadr's move is actually to throw the ball into the play field of the uh, coordination framework. And uh, it remains to be seen how the coordination framework then responds and engineers a solution that can appease everyone. 
I agree with all three of you, and I think there are a few scenarios that could play out in the coming months. We do need to keep in mind that the Parliament has passed the Emergency Food Financing and Development Law, and assuming that the uh, lawsuit against it does not go through and that it is not struck down by the federal Supreme Court, then Iraq is able to hobble along for the rest of 2022 regardless of the government formation process. And as for the coordination framework, I agree with Mohammed that they now have the opportunity to either go all the way with uh, forming a strong uh, government, as Hamza said, focused on, on services, and if not, then we will see uh, protests returning, whether they're Sadrist-led or not. Thank you very much for joining us, gentlemen. I appreciate your time. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care. <laughs>